When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Righto, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today talking with a really good friend of mine, Bill Bestick. Bill is uh, currently an anaesthetist. He is a former kidnap and ransom specialist, and prior to that was formerly an officer in the New Zealand SAS. So today we're going to be talking about failure, So, which is bizarre when you think about it, that's been as successful as Bill. So Bill, welcome along to Crisis Talks, mate. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me. Now, mate, given all that success, mate, what qualifies you to talk about failure? <laughs> well, uh, A, I'm used to failure and I've had a lot of experience at it. Uh, and perhaps B, paradoxically, some of those are what look like successes by other metrics are successes because of their inherent failure that gets you there. So failure for me has been a really important part of um, performance development. And my first career in the SAS, I guess I didn't really recognise that what we were doing was was improve performance through failure. We didn't have a name for it. Mm. And it wasn't until I went to another career really through, um, through the kidnap world and crisis management and into medicine where I, you know, stumbled and fell many times mm. that I had to come to grips with, with this whole concept of failure in a much more personal way. Um, and considered way that I had before. And how has that then affected you? So in that personal way, how has that affected you, mate? Oh, well, I think it's easier to talk about failure and saying, yeah, I'm someone that learns from my mistakes until mm. you have an actual failure. And certainly some of the groups I talk to, junior doctors uh, particularly, you know, their version of failure is a, it can be a bit different because you don't wish failure on people, but you know, the toughest thing you might be going through is failing to get a, the car park that you wanted that morning and people consider that, well, I cope pretty well with that. You know, that's not the kind mm. of failure we're talking about. I'm resilient, yeah. 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 Um, and you know, I, I read an interesting article recently about a fighter pilot uh, who was a British fighter pilot in charge of their, of their flight school and one of their mm candidates was an outstanding candidate and she passed everything in flying colors all the way through and he'd said to one of his junior instructors after one of her check flights fail her hmm. he said the junior instructor was like well what do you mean fail her? she's actually done really well he goes because she hasn't failed yet and i don't right. want her to fail in flight in combat over syria and not know how to deal with failure i want her to fail hmm. in a controlled environment here so she can learn to cope hmm. with it so I think 
what I've discovered in terms of reading around this topic a lot is that, is that in really high performance teams, mm. sports teams particularly have gripped this up in the last decade or so, but uh, the SAS is no different. Fighter pilots, um, high performing management teams, I'm sure are the same, is mm -hmm. that failure and their relationship with failure is, is a really key component of that. And why, why is it such a, a powerful tool for high-performing organisations? Well, I think it's because um, our response to failure is, mm. is the key issue here. Um, and certainly um, research supports that such that if you're the kind of person who um, their metric of success is how, how little you failed, how much you've succeeded, mm then each time you fall, your performance gets worse. Yeah. Yep. Success is a poor teacher. Yep. Um, if you track teams, high performance teams like the All Blacks, mm. they really talked about this culture quite a lot where they hadn't learned how to deal with failure. Mm -hmm. And in each World Cup they would come to, when they would stumble, they would fall. Hard. And it, exactly. And, and, yeah. and as they started to lose a game, their performance got worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. The teams that uh, are used to dealing with failure um, learn to use that failure to get better. So I think um, it's your attitude to failure that this fixed versus growth mindset, the mm. fixed mindset says that, well, if I fail, then I'm not good enough. Yeah. I'm just inherently not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. And then each time you attempt something and you do badly at it, mm -hmm. it reinforces this mindset that, well, I'm just not good enough. Yeah. If you approach it to go any new skill, any new thing, well, look, I'm going to make mistakes and that's going to be a really important part of learning. Mm. Then you de-stress yourself. Yeah. Your performance will actually get better faster mm -hmm. and you won't be threatened by error because no longer are you saying, well, failure equals, um, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's really, it's an important part of learning. Now it's very easy to talk about this stuff. It's much, much harder to actually, actually do it yourself. You know, you talk about that personal journey. It's, I find frequently I'm, I'm good at talking about it, but it, mm. it, it's hard to apply it because none of us mm. like to fail. No, none of us no. like to admit it or talk about it. Um, so it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to apply. I think it takes, takes real work. With that in mind, mate, what's the best application of practicing failure that you've seen or been or experienced yourself? Um, I see it certainly in my job in medicine. I see it. Mm -hmm. I see that to but be got, a really but, good. But you've got zero error there. I mean, it's a life death situation. So how how can you practice well, failure in that environment, or is it taking well, out of yeah, it, I guess, Grant, depends on your metric. I mean, um, you know, as an anaesthetist, I've got more metrics than, than, than life or death. It, yep. As an anaesthetist, it can be, um, did the patient wake up in extreme pain? Did they have a lot of nausea? Um, what, what experience did I give the patient? Um, did I miss things throughout the case? If it was a major trauma, did I forget to check a blood result? Or I got 
distracted by other things. If there was a, a major crisis like an anaphylaxis or an airway emergency, and there were now 12 people in the room that I had to manage, did I manage that appropriately? Did I remember the right protocol? Did I get dosing wrong? Did I use cognitive aids? Um, did I apply good human factors and leadership? So there's a lot of metrics that you can apply. And we certainly test this a lot in a simulated environment um, where we use increasingly using simulation to expose anaesthetists to, to different models of failure. Um, but in the medical model, what we because people are trained right from med medical school that, that the individual knows everything, that you're smart, and if you don't know the diagnosis, you haven't done enough study. So that's how you're sort of mentored yep. up through the medical system. So it's probably a little wonder yeah. when we get to a complex, multi-system, multi-task environment that, that people think, well, I have to know what the diagnosis is instead of just trying to fly the plane, as aviation would say. Um, and we've learned a lot from aviation. Uh, you know, they have these fantastic crisis management acronyms like sort of aviate, navigate, communicate. Um, where they just focus on, uh, you know, for us would be just keep the patient alive first and then worry about what's going to happen next. Um, no point in coming up with a complex diagnosis with, with a dead patient. Um, so I think we, so in medicine, I definitely see this, this struggle that people have because of the way our culture approaches failure um, in a way that was completely absent in, in a lot of those military cultures that, that you and I were in, were, were very much about the debrief and about, in hindsight, negativity, because the cultures were not about heaping praise on each other. It was about, right, now, what did we, we're far more interested in what we did wrong, yeah. because that, that's the area that we know we need to improve on, yeah. Um, yeah. which is in vast contrast to a lot of the way that I think I see a lot of other business being run, which is really all about heaping praise on each other. And I'm not against heaping praise, mm. but when you do look at high performance teams, they are about these marginal gains. They're about, well, where are the areas of improvement? Mm. And therefore our attitude is looking for that all the time. It's interesting that you, ha you talk about aviation. You're studying to be a pilot now. How far mm. through are you? Oh, I'm really right at the start of that, Grant. So. I've done uh, probably 12, 15 hours of, of towards my um, commercial helicopter license and, um, and started to sit some of the exams. And, and again, very much I found myself uh, as a student again with instructors less than half my age. Yep. Uh, and having to apply the stuff that I talk about. And, yep. you know, and it's hard because, you know, I have a bad flight um, and I don't perform well at all. Mm. And I find I've got to say to myself, Bill, that's part, this is part of this, you know, you can't have an error-free journey. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard. It's, it is hard when, you, when you're a performance-orientated person, you, you know, it's tough when you, when you don't perform to the standard that you want. Um, yeah, it's interesting because um, the, the, that high-performance team in an aircraft, you know, in a cockpit, um, we had a, I had the pleasure of speaking to an, another old colleague of mine who was a, a Navy aviator, Dan Cooney, 
um, who who spoke about a close call experience or a near miss experience that they had in a P3C Orion when he was seconded to the Air Force, um, and he used the, the acronym ANC, you know, Aviate, Navigate, Communicate. He's actually extended that into also uh, dance now, so it's decision or decide, aviate, navigate, communicate, then evaluate. Because at that near miss, they, they pulled into a safe space, so they aviated out of the problem. Um, they, they then did an in-flight debrief on the situation, uh, reoriented, and then got back onto task again from there. Then they went through a full debrief with a full um, aviation uh, report afterwards, bringing out external parties to perform that evaluation and debrief. Um, and he said that was just part of the way that they operate. Mm-hmm. And it's been par for the way that they, they manage themselves. How do you find uh, organisations being, and particularly in the medical profession now, do you find that there's that openness or willingness to evaluate and debrief and then improve off the back of some of these near misses or 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 poor performances? Absolutely not. And in fact, um, yeah, our debrief version, if you like, is called a, a morbidity and mortality meeting, an M and M, and that that's a process where we review all the deaths and near misses over the previous period. So that's not that's not a specific. It's it's just over a period, or is it after every one? Yeah. Uh, they're accumulated right. over two or three months. And then we, we select okay. cases and we present them. So what what usually happens is that the the anaesthetist involved or the doctor involved um, through whatever auditing process is told, well, this, this happened, mm-hmm. you know, this near miss, and you're going to talk about this yep. to the department mm-hmm. of your peers. But what I've noticed sort of, you know, concept of, of cognitive dissonance where mm. you through often through, it's easy to say it's the person trying to be deceitful, but there, there's a subconscious protection of your own ego there where you reframe what happened. Mm. So where, where you sort of minimize the stuff that you missed and you maximize the complexity perhaps of the situation to, you know, um, so what you're getting is a very, very filtered version of events. Mm. And it would really be like a, a pilot being asked, well, listen, you um, you screwed up this the other week. Why don't you talk about it? Mm. Mm. And I've, I've been recently doing a bit of work with Qantas, a guy called Sean Golding, mm-hmm. who's a Qantas um, 787 captain, and he's one of the simulation instructors at Mascot. And yep. Sean's been coming out and, and helping us run simulation and medicine, and I've been going out to the Qantas um, simulator with him watching some pilot human factors training. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what's interesting about their culture there is for example, in the 787, if you exceed, let's say a bank angle, you bank the aircraft too steeply. Yep. Uh, coming out of San Francisco airport, the system flags that automatically so that every, um, parameter, outside the aircraft's safe performance is flagged and you get asked to say, listen, I saw you had a steep bank angle out of San Francisco. Would you like to explain why you did that? Now I compare that with medicine where it's this sort of self-reporting, it's, um, it's uh, 
it, there's not an external review of, of an accident. It, it's a personal review. And then we don't share those accidents outside our department. So I, I work at eight different hospitals. Yeah. There are eight different M&M meetings. None of them cross over or share information, let alone across the city or the state or the country. Mm. Now, crazy, right? And, and what, it's, what it's doing is speaking volumes of, of how far aviation have got as a culture in terms yeah. of error and their view of error. A long time ago, they went, well, let's stop blaming the pilot and let's look for all the causative factors. Mm. Um, there's this desire to sort of drop back to this simplicity, this narrative fallacy that it's, mm. it's, it's much easier as humans to blame an individual. Yeah. Um, and I see that in M&Ms, you'll tend to sit there and pass judgment on the doctor concerned guy. Oh, yeah. Well, he missed that or he didn't do this instead of saying, well, actually, what are all the issues contributing to this? Is it the rosters? Mm. Um, you know, aviation call it threat and error management, but, yep. but they're very good at defining latent threats, external threats, internal threats, mm. how threats lead to making errors. Yep. And then let's look at how we might manage those errors. They've yep. really looked at their decision-making processes and their ability to identify and try to eliminate error in a way that I think other other cultures just haven't done how do you see the medical profession then getting out of this or evolving from this position i, I think we are in a process of evolution hmm. i think we're a generation away from it hmm. um you know when i watch how Qantas pilots four times a year four times a year they get dragged back to that simulator and assessed and yeah. if they fail they're grounded yep now, in medicine, we don't get that at all. I think we should do that too. We should be dragged into a simulated operating theatre. Mm. And if we don't pass certain crisis management tasks, then we should be grounded till we retrain. Yep. So I think we should have a black box in the operating theatre. We should voice mm. record every conversation that happens in an operating theatre. Now, when I've suggested this to my doctor colleagues, you can imagine <laughs> the response that I get. Yeah. I say, but why are we threatened by transparency and visibility over what happens in this environment mm. um, because we we're, because we see ourselves as highly trained professionals that don't need that level of scrutiny mm. um, we see ourselves as being error free when the reality is we're just not no so i think i think we'll get there the conversations around error are, are, are part of opening up yep. that process and Currently, most doctors' response to a major failure, like a death of a patient through their own mistake or something like that. I mean, there's things, patients can die from things that you can't expect, Yeah. but it's when you make a mistake mm. that kills or harms a patient that's very hard to deal with. You give the patient a drug that they're allergic to and you, you forgot that they're allergic to and they die from it. Mm. How, do you, how do you cope with that kind of error? Mm. Um, and if we haven't learned to deal with error prior to that, then people fall back on alcohol and drugs and suicide and other mental health problems, which are rampant in the medical fraternity because of that, I think. Going back into your earlier career, can you tell us how, particularly in the New Zealand SASR, how, how you went about um, putting a process around failure and, and then how you took those, you know, those lessons and then turned them into, into positive actions or positive habits that you would then go and emulate from there on in? You know, I think 
we didn't really realize well, i didn't realize a lot of what was going on there because it was just part of the culture but yeah certainly the sas culture across australia new zealand and the united kingdom is it's very strongly built on their four tenants that david sterling designed the unit it was the founder of the unit in the mm. british sas um in world war ii but it's yeah, some of those key principles were things like the relentless pursuit of excellence. Mm. You, that there is no endpoint of of achieving excellence. You just keep trying to pursue this thing, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what you're yep. doing. So that means you're looking for improvement all the time. Um, yeah. There's no there's no such thing as as right. I've I've arrived. I can relax now. Um, because yeah. there's always a way to improve it. And I think that's a, a hallmark of, of all high-performance team, teams. Mm. And and I think another key tenet that, that strung home was uh, about humility. You know, you, you maintain a sense of humour, but you maintain humility. And it, as one of my senior uh, instructors used to say, humility reigns. Mm. Um, no one was allowed to get a big head. And, you know, the first day I arrived on the kind of terrorist team where I finally get to wear all the black kit and gas masks and all the mm. stuff that I, as a boy had inspired me to join the unit. And then I get issued a broom instead of a, of a, you know, assault rifle and think what's going on here. And then there's a whole established broom ceremony where the whole counter terrorist team and all their black kit lines up in the team shed and, the previous newbies hand over their brooms to the new guys and it doesn't matter what rank you are as a captain you'll be sweeping the shed out too until the next guys arrive there was this constant reminder that you one person is not better than the mm. team and uh we all do our mm. bit and you're only one step away from falling flat on your face again so so don't get a big head and um that that's normalized that becomes part of that yeah. culture there's a lot of piss taking and a lot of the humor is about basically keeping people on a level mm. ground, um, which when I served in other tier one units um, around the world, that is completely different culture than that. What do you, you know? call, what do you, for the benefits of the people listening, what's the other tier one units that you'll be referring to? Oh, I mean, like um, yeah, I served overseas with SEAL teams from the US, uh, with, uh, with Delta um, uh, and other, other country special yep. forces. And the, and the, certainly the hallmarks of those units that were that were high performance was that there was no sense of rank or entitlement or or ego. It was, um, you know, an assault might have gone really well, but someone dropped something or tripped over. That's the thing that everyone will remind you about. You know, um, you know, it didn't matter how minor it was. If there's something you missed, absolutely, it would be brought yeah. up. Uh, and all the course report, you know, like that story about they're being told, right, make sure you fail that mm. pilot. I used, to, I used to burn reading some of my course reports, you know, on the climbing course or something. I think I tried really hard and thought I'd been quite a good climber or something. It'd be this thing about Captain Bestick struggles to tie even the most basic <laughs> knots. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> Asshole, that's not true. I'd be enraged by this comment, yeah. you know, but... It, it was all about basically bringing you back down to earth. Yeah. I think. And, and the cultures that do that, I think, and like the all blacks now, you know, I've been used to come up to our unit to, um, 
do bits of training and leadership training and ask us to help identify leaders within the team. Mm. And I read years later that they were starting to sweep out their team shed and that yeah, yeah. Richie McCaw would sweep. And I don't know whether they got that from us or not. I've never asked them about it, but it's similar. When you look at those teams, there are cultures that are similar. Um, The tenants are the same. So I think same with pilots, you know, the very best pilots that you interact Mm. with are very, very humble. Um, They know it's a, it's a team environment and they know they're one flight away from a major disaster. So they're, they're staying on that relentless pursuit of excellence. So I think there's stuff there that I learned that I've certainly carried through um, every profession I've worked in. With the other professions then, so you, you did that, you had the, a brilliant career in the, in the SAS, then you've, you've gone on to a, a career outside consulting, you know, on crisis management, uh, and in particular on kidnap and ransom. What's been the better organisations that you've seen, without naming names, what's been the better uh, organisations or, or performers that you've seen um, and why? what makes them stand out? Well, certainly when I went into the kidnap and ransom world, one thing that I felt really at home there, uh, and that was originally with Clayton Consultants, which doesn't, doesn't exist anymore, but there were... A, we would basically we would meet once a year um, in London or Paris somewhere usually and we would run our own morbidity and mortality meeting we would review every case for the last 12 months mm-hmm. um, and people talked openly and honestly and frankly about their errors and what they got wrong with various cases and um, at that stage we were doing probably up to 80 kidnaps a year yep uh, with a core group of consult probably maybe 20. 12 to 20 kidnap consultants Um, and it was exactly the same culture. It was this Mm. relentless pursuit of excellence, this humility um, and very free about admitting errors. So people felt in each of those cultures that I worked in afterwards, the companies that I felt were successful, comfortable enough to talk about within their own groups about their own mistakes. one of the hospitals I work at in Sydney, the Royal North Shore Hospital, is is a, one of you know one of my favourite places to work. Major trauma hospital. It's a really high performing individuals there, and they all talk openly about their own errors. Um, these are some of the most inspirational doctors I've ever met. But one feature of all of them is their ability to talk about their own mistakes, and because they talk about them openly subordinates for want of a better word or feel more comfortable perhaps themselves talking about it whereas if you've got a culture that sees error as bad and and it punishes people heavily and i'm not saying that people are absolved from punishment or discipline if if they you know if you turn up for work drunk yeah um that's not about sorry guys i'm drunk and it's not like you don't get punished for that right? it's, that's, not, <laughs> yeah. that's not putting out about errors um, <laughs> I've admitted, the, I've admitted the error, yeah. That's right. The great episodes of Scrubs where Cox says to the two doctors there, have you guys been drinking? We're not airline pilots. <laughs> um, so it's, it doesn't absolve you of discipline. I think no. um, Matthew Side talks about that in his book, Black Box Thinking, but it 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 does create this culture. That, so, it, you know, it's a real component of leadership. And I, I, I don't recall us being taught this at 
Duntroon mm. where you and I went, but I, maybe they do now, but I, I do feel that as if you're a leader, yeah, the more you can talk about your own errors, the more you send a message to people that it's okay to talk about it. The culture becomes much more humble. Mm. You become more humble by talking about it. Mm. Um, and it becomes, it's not stigmatized. Yeah, I think, um, I think now you hear a lot of it in, in the leadership parlance around vulnerability or expressing that or showing that vulnerability. And, and a lot of people are now commended for that, whether it be for mental health reasons, whether it be for general leadership reasons. Um, and, but that, that principle of humility or humor and humility that you had as a, as a principle from the, from the SAS, that, that is a, you know, that is one of those sort of guiding principles I think is an amazing one to take away. How, how did, you know, aside from the, the, the humor side of the fence and then obviously the debriefing side of the fence, um, how did that though be, how was that then reinforced in, in every operational job that you were doing at the time? Well, I think there was always a, certainly a sense of um, black humor for one of another word and in, and in high performing um, medical teams, I've seen the same thing. When I worked on the rescue helicopter, there was a, um, a strong sense of that kind of humor in amongst the pilot, yourself, the paramedic. So I think there was always looking for opportunities for humor, even if you're in the midst of a crisis or in a board meeting, even with kidnap cases. Um, uh, so I think humor, you know, it, it's more than just a lighthearted look at something. It, it breaks tension. It, it, it puts the situation in perspective. It de-stresses people. And it doesn't matter how stressful the situation can be. Sometimes just that little bit of humor can, can break the situation enough to calm you back into a, a better frame of mind. Um, so I think it's something that, that should be embraced. And the fact that it's sort of listed as one of those tenets of the SAS, like specifically list humor, I think is, is kind of cool. Yeah, it is very cool. <laughs> there's, there's very little room for humor though, when you're facing a media scrum, you know, in the front of a, a major crisis, the, the expectations now on organizations or in the same vein, rather, you know, the medical malpractice, um, issues that overhang or sit above these reviews post any incidents. Um, how can how can we sort of give lessons to organisations around how they can apply the humility in those circumstances when they're having to front up in the worst case scenario? Well, I think you know people you could, people can always sense whether you're genuine or not, right? And yeah, yep. if you're genuine uh, and you're doing the right thing, mm. then everything else should look after itself. You know. I know my job, if I do my best to my ability and look after my patients well, the rest will, as long as I care about my patients, the rest will sort itself out. And in the medical world, there's been this great fear around admitting or saying sorry because if something happens because there's some fear of admission of liability. When we know that... Um, your likelihood of being sued is much more closely linked to how you treated someone, not the complication that you had. 
I recall a study they did in the States where they basically looked at how certain doctors treated a car parking attendant versus the likelihood they'd be, they were sued. And, and virtual straight line correlation. You're an asshole to the, to the low level worker, you're much more likely to be sued, regardless of how skilled you were as a surgeon. Um, and that, so certainly in the medical sense, if you can go to a patient and say, look, I'm really sorry, I didn't get this right. I really tried, I did my best, and it just didn't go well for us today. And the result is gonna be for you, not what you wanted or X, Y, and Z. And I think potentially for the media, we see this a lot um, when I was working in the malicious product tampering yep. world as part of the you know, kidnap response policies, policy. The same sort of approach where um, you've got something wrong with a product or, or your performance or staff have been killed because you've mismanaged something. But the moment you're disingenuous about that or you try to reframe it with these platitudes around, well, we take safety very seriously and we're going to review our procedures. Yeah, we, people are smart enough to know that these are often blanket mm. statements. But if you're actually genuinely remorseful and you genuinely mm. want to do something better, then I think people see that. And there should be less fear then about the media's interpretation of that. Because if it is genuine, th then, that, then that message should come across. Have you seen a real reluctance for organisations in crisis management in particular to practice to failure? Absolutely. Um, because it's in the organisations that I worked with, it wasn't part of day-to-day -day operations. And we know that in any crisis management and, and for us in the medical mass casualty response mm -hmm. for mass shootings and terrorist attacks is an example of that where we don't want to write a mass casualty plan mm. that takes people completely away from what they normally do. Mm. What we want is a, a an extension of your day-to-day -day work. Yeah. We know that that works the best. Mm -hmm. And really that's, that's following some of those crisis management principles. We don't take, you know, if someone's normally the legal counsel on their day-to-day -day job, yeah. then they're the legal counsel for a, for a crisis response. Mm -hmm. Or if they're an operations manager day-to-day, -day, yeah they've got an operations role in the, in the crisis team. Mm -hmm. You know, practicing it day to day um, by accepting and talking about failure or they're running exercises that are designed to find holes. Um, you know, as we know in the military, they, all those exercises were about really, we, we didn't expect it to go well. We expected there to be problems. Um, and we knew that on the day when we, you know, nothing survives, no plan survives, you know, the first contact with the enemy. That, so we, I think in the military, we're always really attuned to expecting failure. Um, whereas I found on the corporate side, more on the crisis management, there was an expectation sometimes at the higher level that it would just go the way that you demanded that it went. And kidnap was certainly like that. I found dealing with, CEOs of companies, particularly when we're in negotiation phase with kidnappers, there was a strong set because they're used to saying, when I say X, then X happens. But, but now you're dealing with an unknown, you're dealing with a kidnapping group that is not going to, they're not your subordinate, they're not a subcontractor, they're not a junior partner. Um, in fact, the power balance in the kidnap world has shifted across to the kidnappers. So 
and I think in a crisis, there's a component of that. You're trying to manage and control that crisis, sure, but these are things sometimes that are out of your control. They're not always going to go well. And if you haven't tested and trained that and got it wrong and been humble about your approach to that, then you're going to struggle on the day too. My father was a football coach and he always used the analogy of Nadia Comaneci, who said it's not just about practice makes perfect, but perfect yeah. practice makes perfect. I think people take that and interpret the fact that you have to be perfect in your practice rather than actually yeah. practicing to fail. Absolutely. So the more the more that you can see someone, you know, more you can fail in practice, the better you're going to perform in the real time. How can how can that realism though be built in in those situations? Or how have you built that realism into into preparedness for crisis management situations? I think for crisis management. You know, there's huge scope if you're essentially going to simulate a crisis that there's no reason why you can't quite regularly, quite routinely, at least every quarter, just be getting the team together and throwing scenarios at the team. And then also each time, I think crisis management, we're often fixated on the threshold to say, all right, this is a crisis or not, instead of this is a chance just to just to run the system and um i see that a lot of in our own hospitals with, with you know i've struggled with some of our major hospitals trying to develop or assist with development of crisis of mass casualty plans and we had the same problem there there's this real sense of well let's see there's eight people injured in a bus crash i mean i, th- I don't think we need to call this a crisis i'd be like well let's let's just call it a mass casualty event because because we get a chance to practice the system and hopefully it'll be a little bit flawed because, because then we would have discovered a really important thing that we need to do, like that the phones don't work or that we don't have enough beds or something, or we're missing some critical piece of equipment. And we would have thought, geez, thank God we sorted that out today. But each time you, you don't cross that threshold, you miss a fantastic opportunity to get it wrong. So it's again about not being threatened about getting it wrong. Getting it wrong is like, excellent. That was a worthwhile activity because we discovered something really useful to improve upon. How much have you seen organisations with that fixed mindset, um, how can they get themselves out of that mindset and into a growth mindset? Yeah, it's a great question, Greg. I think when I used to come in as a, as a you know, consultant or advisor, either because of crisis had happened like a kidnap or we were pre-training and preparation for it mm-hmm. the only way we could influence it externally was by trying to run scenarios and training mm-hmm. but i think if i was within that organization the easiest way to do it is that it from the top down from the leader down if they're embracing and talking about errors and failure then the culture is going to pervade very very quickly and very rapidly you don't need some long-winded cultural change program you just need to to um practice what you preach in terms of not hanging out failures to dry getting people to admit and talk and be open about it and perhaps education around um fixed versus growth mindset and and because there's lots of research out there about that Mm. and saying you know if you're really interested in performance um 
James Dyson, you know, the creator of, of the Dyson Company, he's a guy yep. who's been very vocal about talking about failure and how many times he has to get something wrong mm. before he can get it right and how he, he embraces failure within his own company. So there's, there's great examples in industry of, of companies that have said, right, this fixed versus growth mindset concept is really important. This dynamic versus static intelligence approach. Yep. It's not about you're just born with this much of IQ and you can't do anything about it. It's <laughs> yeah. a great way to empower your own children to go, it doesn't matter what marks you get at school. Don't worry about that. It's far more important that you, that you recognize that there is no place for an IQ test. Your HSC mark and all that means absolutely nothing. Don't pigeonhole yourself because you left school at year 10 that you're somehow at some fixed level of IQ because it's garbage it's far more important that your approach to failure allows you to progress and perform because you're going to outstrip and outperform people who on an IQ test have a much higher score. And I see that all the time. You sort of do a little bit of consulting here and there on the side, but if it was your last consulting gig now, what would be that lasting piece of advice you'd give to a client? Um, you know, who dares wins sounds, uh, <laughs> sounds pretty cool. Uh, but, but that, that's, that motto, who dares wins is, is what's driven me to do all the things I've done since I left PSAS. Mm. Um, because it gave me confidence to, to go, who dares wins just really means, uh, give it a go. Mm. And don't be afraid to fail. And it doesn't mean being reckless. It doesn't mean I don't care about my performance. Um, it doesn't mean that success is bad. You're allowed to you're allowed to go through and do well without completely ballsing it up. But if your approach is like like I'm approaching this learning a new skill about flying is I'm going to get it wrong and that's okay and it's part of it and I'm going to be better for it. It's enormously liberating, and it'll it'll. It means, you know, you'll, ha you'll have the confidence to try a new skill, to travel, to try a new job, to a new venture, all that sort of stuff. And those of us that have been through multiple failures and got back up again, aren't scared of failing as much as perhaps we're used to being. Once you've checked your ego at the door and said, you know what, it doesn't matter. My mates will still have a beer with me and still take the piss out of me. And that's actually more important than, than being employee of the month, you know? Last question that I've been asking everyone that's been involved in these, mate, and this has been an amazing discussion, mate, so thank you. Um, if you could have a chat with one person in the world that's been through a major crisis or has led through a major incident in their lives, who would you pick? Uh, they, they have to be alive. Who would you love to bring back to life? Oh, I probably want to chat to people like Edmund Hillary. Um, uh, to me, just epitomized humility and, uh, you know, I think what his comment, we knocked the bugger off was his comment when he finished. And the fact that he would never say who actually summited because it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think that kind of just quiet, silent, strong achiever who's is only about himself and performance within himself and, and not about what it means to anyone else. That that's a 
uh, a pretty powerful. I think if, but if I think if you had a conversation with them, it'd be pretty short. I don't think you'd have a lot to say. <laughs> what, a, what about a converse with Ed, someone alive, mate? So if someone, someone who's still around now. Uh, well, look, I think um, someone that's been very inspiring to me um, in, in, about all the stuff we've been talking about is Richie McCaw. Mm. And uh, I, I've got three uh, sons, uh, as you know, and I got them to watch Chasing Great. And mm. what struck me a lot about that story of Richie McCaw's is that he was not a natural talent mm. and that it was, uh, you know, not this brilliant rugby player that exploded onto the scene. He was a sort of a, a quiet, chubby, not particularly talented bloke who just worked hard mm. and was happy to his failure and you know david pocock's probably a, a similar kind of guy that these are these individuals that they're enormously humble people uh, they're not afraid to fail mm. um and they they just set themselves a goal and go for it and the fact that you know richie's a chopper pilot he just makes it even better oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think uh the the the, the four interviews that i've done today Three of them have had a, a heavy theme around aviation, uh, so it's quite refreshing hearing that uh, that come through. Um, who would have thought a, a talk about failure would be so uplifting? Um, Bill Bestick, thank you very much for you know, for joining us today on Crisis Talks. It's been a real privilege, mate. So thank you. Grant, thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate it. That concludes episode four of Crisis Talks. In next week's episode, I'm interviewing Matthew Gill who is presently the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of White Rock Minerals. In 2006, Matthew Gill was the General Manager of Beaconsfield Mine in Tasmania, when at 9.26pm on the 25th of April, an earthquake happened, which killed Larry Knight and trapped Todd Russell and Brant Webb for two weeks in horrific conditions until their rescue. Their story of survival and resilience in those underground conditions is well documented. The story behind their rescue is not I look forward to sharing Matthew Gill's story of the Beaconsfield Mines Rescue over the next two weeks.